Welcome and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Now let's join Pastor Ben Teethy for his message. Theology is the processing and study of the concept of God and uh, comes from the word theos, God in the Greek language, and logos, which means word or sometimes the study of or the laws of. And, and, and so theology is how do we grapple with the presence of a being in the universe called God. And so the type of theology we're doing is not systematic theology where we line up all the different truths, mainly from a human perspective where we ask our questions and wonder our wonderings about God and then turn to the Bible and find evidences for the things we would say and believe from the Bible. It's systematic theology where we proof text. We look through and say, I don't know, did Adam have a belly button? Let's see what that says. I don't know. Uh, should Christians eat hamburgers? Let's see what the Bible says. Systematic theology where we proof text our beliefs by looking through the scriptures. Not bad or evil. I actually find it a bit boring, but it is a necessary thing in the part of our life. But we're doing this other thing called biblical theology. Biblical theology asks this. What does God's unfolding revelation ask us to believe? Now, that's different to what questions do I have, because when I look at the biblical revelation that God has and say, what unfolding revelation does God want me to believe? God leaves some of my questions unanswered and says, "Uh, nice question, Ben. I would rather tell you something else right now. So we open our Bible in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, and uh, we find Genesis doesn't answer all of the questions we have about life. And there's a reason for that. We might have to wait for a whole lot longer in our Bible reading and our Bible study to get our answers about life. And biblical theology says God unveils his plans and his thinking and his thoughts in a particular order, building on a worldview, building on a way of seeing the world and asks us to embrace that worldview and let it pepper and permeate and marinate everything that we think. So we ask some questions. What order does this revelation come to us in? How should we understand it? And of course, what way does it call us to see the world? What does it call us to believe? How do we apply it? And how do we respond to it? Which is always an important thing. A lot of people, when they study the Bible, they forget those two last very important words. Apply and respond. And Bible study is only half done if we don't apply it to our lives. And responding is part of studying the Bible. So there's a tradition in Christian theology. And the tradition is we study the Bible, but we always make sure that it drives us from our textbooks to our knees. And then what we do is we bring what we're learning and what we're processing before God and say, okay, God, how do I respond to this? So what happens in this uh, next few weeks, we're going to be taking a flyover. We're not going to get to all your favorite topics. It's okay. We're not going to get to my favorite topics too. But um, we're going to take a little flyover, God's story, the unfolding of God's story from Genesis through to Revelation and have a look through biblical theology about some of the things that God says to us. Now, we do it with a couple of ideas in mind that I'm going to go through quickly so we can get to processing a particular passage. With biblical theology, we say, what does God's unfolding revelation ask us to believe? And that is the process of interpretation. We know what it says, but what's it saying to us? And we go through an interpretive process. Don't let the word scare you. You interpret all the time. You interpret all the time. Uh, What would happen is if you turn on the TV in the middle of any type of television show and you see somebody pick up a chair and hit someone with the chair, how are you going to respond? You're so shocked, you don't know how you're going to respond. How are you going to respond? One word answer, somebody shouted out. You're going to duck? You're going to say, why did he hit the person with the chair? You may not say anything, you might do something. Now, watch, if the show happens to be called Seinfeld and the character getting hit with the chair is called Kramer, what are you going to do? 
you're going to laugh because the type of material you're dealing with calls for the interpretation of comedy, which means when bad things happen, laugh. But if you're watching a a show called CSI... Auckland, um, then, then you're going to say, what did you hit me with a cheer for, aren't you? Uh, and you're going to have a different response because CSI is not comedy. I know you think sometimes the acting is like comedy on that show, but CSI is not comedy, CSI is drama, so that when you see someone get hit with a chair, you're going to, oh, and it's going to build tension in you because you're an interpreter. And that means you make, con- you make calls and interpretive judgments all the time about a whole bunch of things and no one explains the rules to you. You just know because you've grown up in this world. You know the difference between Seinfeld, jokes, funny, not serious, and CSI, serious. So when we turn to the Bible, there's interpretation to be done because the Bible is actually not just one book, it's an anthology of books. This is a library, this book, and we talked last week, you can get the podcast about the different languages, the different regions of the world, the different personalities inspired by God to write, and uh, the different perspectives. And we mentioned briefly this word genre, and genre simply means type of literature, and the Bible is full of different genres, different types of literature. There's poetry, there's apocalyptic literature, which is sort of like Tolkien on drugs or something like that. And, and, and then there's, you know, there's letters, there's prophecy, there's songs, there's, there's allegory, there's a whole bunch of stuff in Scripture. And each one of them has a unique way of being read so that you understand how to interpret it, just like the difference between Seinfeld and CSI. So here's what most people get intimidated about when it comes to Bible interpretation and hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, we said it last week, it's the art and science of interpreting the Bible. It's a little bit scientific, there's a process, but it's a little bit artistic, there's creativity involved. And the art and science of hermeneutics shouldn't scare you because you do hermeneutics all the time. When you open up the paper, you know, uh, when, when it says, today there's going to be rain, you know, that's comedy when you read the, uh, you know, the, um, the weather thing, so you laugh at it. You, you interpret stuff all the time. And that's what hermeneutics is. We ask some questions with hermeneutics. We say, what did the original writing mean to the first authors and the first hearers? And for us to answer that question, what did it mean? We don't just go, well, I reckon it means this. And we poked fun last week at the group Bible study experiences where we sit around in a circle and everybody goes, well, I don't know, for me, this, when I think of it, this is what it means to me. And then Sister Cuthbert will go around, she'll say what it means to her. And then Brother Bloganoff will go over here and he'll, he'll say what it means to him. And we'll just collectively pool our ignorance and we'll just come away with this really good feeling as we've collectively pooled our ignorance. All saying what it means to us. Which is fine if before you say what it means to you, that's application by the way, you ask this question, in the original language to the original culture, the original history, in context and in that genre, what did it mean to the person who wrote it and what did the first receivers think it meant? That's the question we ask in hermeneutics and we try to get in for that. Here's the good news, we live in the digital age people. The resource, tools, study, the resource tools, study tools that are available to us now make it easier to study the Bible than ever before. So what I have a great problem with, and this is why we're partially doing this series, is that more and more in the church is this thing called biblical illiteracy. And we know Taylor Swift songs more than we know the shepherd songs from Psalm 23. And, and, and I think what we've got to do as a family is we've got to study God's word together and get into it. And not just like it's a book of horoscopes. You think, who, what, who would approach God's word like it's a book of horoscopes? Well, people do. And they'd be like, okay. Oh, John 3.16. For God so loved the world and he gave his one and his son. Whoever lives in him shall perish, but shall have eternal life. Oh, praise God, I've got a word for today. Do you know what John 3.15 says? Do you know what John 3 says? What about what John set up in John 1 and then John 2 so that you could get to John 3? 
What about John 3.17, which is the sentence that comes after that? And you don't like it when I take your words out of context and say, but you said this. You say, but you've got to listen to the bit I said before. And I didn't mean that. I meant this. See, that's called taking it out of context. And we routinely do that as Christians. And I'll tell you, Christians have some of the craziest ideas on the face of the earth that they think come from the Bible because they rip stuff out of context. And that's the fruit of biblical illiteracy, that the Bible offers us a comprehensive worldview and an overarching system of seeing the world and thinking that we should embrace. So the way of grappling with language, culture, history, context and genre is called the historical grammatical method. Shouldn't scare you. It means this, that what we do when we grapple with the Bible text um, is we, uh, let's go for our definition of historical grammatical method. It's just simply this, the basic plain sense reading of the scripture by applying the standard rules of grammar and syntax. Now, some people do not do this and they come up with really weird stuff. Turn on the television at 4am and watch people from Texas who teach the Bible on the TV. Okay? They routinely do not apply the plain sense reading of Scripture by applying the standard rules of grammar and syntax to the Bible and to what the text says. It seeks to determine what the text says grammatically and what it meant historically. And it tries to discover the author's original intention by careful use of principles and I'm going to list the principles for you you don't need to remember them because what will happen is often we will study God's word throughout this course and we'll apply the principles and you might not remember what the principles are but you'll see them applied so hopefully you'll kind of get the feel of it as we move on here's the first one understand context context is king everybody say context is king turn the person next to you and say don't take words out of context It's a good piece of advice. We tell journalists they shouldn't do it when they quote you. Isn't that true? And uh, God says, well, if you're going to say that to a journalist, wouldn't you approach my holy word that way? Don't take words out of context. There's immediate context, which means if you're looking at John 3, what does John 3, 1 say? What does John 3, 16 say? What does John 3, 15 and 16 and 17 say? Immediate context. What's going on in that bit together? Don't just rip one bit out. Remote context. Remote context is simply, okay, John 3, 16. That's part of John 3, which has John 2 before it. And then John 1 comes before that. And then there's John 7, where there's a major transition in the gospel. See, there's, there's bits. Of, the Bible fits together like building blocks and like puzzles. And so there's remote context to be considered. Then there's historical context. And historical context is, oh, yeah, Jesus, eh? Jesus getting up and saying to people, the kingdom of God is here. See, we just think that sounds like a nice religious statement, don't we? But in the historical context, the very year that Jesus was born, the Romans crucified people all the way from Jerusalem to Nazareth where Jesus was growing up. They crucified people, men on each side of the road, lined the entire roadway with it. And do you know why they did it? Because they went around saying the kingdom of God is here. Because that statement in the Roman Empire is treason. That statement in the Roman Empire is against the law because the Roman emperor made a rule. I'm the king and I am God. And if anyone talks about another king or another kingdom, I'll kill them. So when you hear Jesus get up and say, hey, listen, the kingdom of God is here, everybody's making a big gulp, a big swallow. Because if Jesus thinks God's kingship, his kingdom is coming back to earth, he's making a big statement to the powers of Rome saying, well, if Jesus is king, if God's king, Caesar mustn't be king. Therefore, the Roman Empire is not the legitimate way to run the world. That's why they killed the early Christians and that's why they were so happy to crucify Jesus. Historical context, often what's going on in the time and place, what's happening in that season, what's going on in that society and in that culture, very important, helps us understand. Here's the next one. Determine the type of literature we're dealing with. Just like the difference between Seinfeld and CSI Miami, 
One is comedy, one is drama. The Bible has different genres, and it's all written down, so they're called literary genres, okay? They're a narrative, which are stories, but we often don't like to use the word stories when it comes to the Bible, because that could give one the indication, maybe it's not true. So we say narrative just to be a little bit more, take the edge off that word story. But if you, stay, if you say the word story, I'm fine with it, okay? So sometimes people say, oh, Pastor Ben, I was reading the Bible story, oh, I mean narrative, Pastor Ben, don't kick me out of the church. You're not going to get in trouble. You're allowed to say story. But its formal classification is narrative, and there's all sorts of types of narratives. There are letters, which we call epistles. I like this saying, the epistle of Paul the Apostle, but it doesn't really mean much to you. There's apocalyptic literature, very interesting type of literature, most of the time gotten wrong in our modern era. Most websites that are teaching you about Bible prophecy and end times and everything that's going on, and most teachers that are writing books and selling CDs about it, they are not grappling seriously with what apocalyptic literature is, and that's why they constantly get it wrong. And if you take all your books from 20 years ago, they said all the same predictions that have been said yesterday, and we've got 200 years worth of wrong predictions We've got 2,000 years worth of wrong predictions from embarrassed theologians who don't know how to grapple with apocalyptic literature. That's actually my hobby horse because I specialised in it when I was doing biblical studies. Occasional literature. Occasional literature is a letter that you write for a particular purpose. When you write a letter for a particular purpose, it's addressing a particular occasion. Now, that's different to if you write a theology textbook where you're just filling it up with generalised beliefs that people should believe. So when we say, let's take an example, we open the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians is an occasional document. That means Paul is addressing a specific happenings going on in a time and place in a location. So almost everything he says addresses specifically what was going on in the Ephesian church. Same with the Corinthians. That's an occasional document. There's an occasion that's made him say something. Now, you can't understand what's being said unless you can understand the occasion around why it's said. And that's the same thing in your life and my life. I have occasional rules with my kids. I've got three kids. One day they'll be in therapy. It's okay. And um, we have occasional rules. I'll give you one. One of my daughters, I've said two contradictory rules to her. And the answer is because they're occasional. She heard from me hundreds and hundreds of times, don't go on the road. And I just said to her the other day, hey, run across the road for me. I didn't say run on the road and stay there. I said run across the road and do something. What? Pastor Ben, you're a hypocrite. You're contradicting how your poor daughter, she's going to, how's she going to understand? Well, it's simple because she wasn't allowed to go on the road up until she was about 10 when she could look for traffic. And now she's 14 and she knows how to stop and look both ways and then back again and then cross the road safely. So see, what happens is my rule was occasional. The don't cross the road rule applied to the girl who was three, but there comes a time if things change that a different occasion might make me say something different. Now, Richard Dawkins, of course, who's a, a famous uh, you know, atheist and detractor from the Scriptures, one of his criticisms of the Scriptures is how much contradiction is in Scripture. By the way, you can't even show me one. But anyway, we're going to just keep moving on. But what there are is there are occasional statements. There are specific statements that deal with specific situations. And there's a lot of occasions and a lot of different situations, which means that in any different situation, different advice might be given. Even in the book of Proverbs, you'll find two contradictory statements, one after the other, occasional statements. Answer a fool according to his folly. What does the next one say? Don't answer a fool according to his folly. (laughs) What do we do with that? Well, simple. There are some fools that you answer according to their folly. And there are other fools, you don't answer them according to their folly. It's not contradiction. It's called occasionality. Certain occasions call for certain rules. You do it, right? Because sometimes you eat chocolate cake and then other times you're saying, I'm not eating chocolate cake. Isn't that true? 
and the occasion going on, often, <laughs> I can tell a buff man like you doesn't eat chocolate cake much, um, often, depending on the occasion, something's going to change. And the Bible actually does contain that. So occasional literature means what's going on determines what is said. And then when something else is happening, something different can be said. I'm going to give you the biggest controversial one, and that is the issue of women in ministry, which for much of the church... <laughs> Judy's like, yes, don't throw a chair at me just yet, Judy. Uh, which for much of the church is highly controversial, that we would let a woman lead or that we would let a woman speak or that we would let a woman preach. I mean, we do let that, and there's a reason why we let that, because we understand occasional literature. So in some bits of the Bible, Paul says, hey, girls, you shouldn't do that. And then other bits in the Bible, he openly encourages it. What is this contradiction that we deal with? And that's called occasionality. There are some times when no one should talk, and there are other times when they can talk, and it doesn't matter what gender they are. Anyway, we're not going to get into that because it's highly controversial. Maybe I'll do a lengthy teaching on it sometime. Okay, let's see. What are we up to? Oh, yes. All right, I'm going to move on. Here's the next one. Interpret figurative language. Now, there's a problem with biblical studies and Christians, and that is we either interpret the non-figurative stuff in a figurative light or we interpret the figurative stuff in a literalist light and we get it all mixed up, okay? So you just need to know this. You don't have to become a black belt in it, but some language in the Bible is figurative, okay? Some is literal. Some is meant to be taken literal. We make a big mistake when we take figurative language literally, okay? Just looking around. There don't seem to be too many one-eyed blokes in the church, which can only mean you're all incredibly holy, All right, moving on. Let scripture interpret scripture. Scripture won't contradict itself. It does harmonize, okay? Now, an example, I've just said it to you before, is the uh, idea of women at church, women leading women in ministry, et cetera, et cetera, where there are verses that say, hey, don't do that. And then there are other verses, and you just take Romans chapter 16 as the worst one to grapple with as someone trying to harmonize scripture, where Paul will call a woman a minister and a co-worker like he does with Timothy and call another woman an apostle and all sorts of stuff. And you've got tremendous problems unless you understand scripture harmonizes and therefore there are occasional moments where some things are suspended and other occasional moments where they're allowed, as it obviously is with the apostle Paul. Okay, here's the next one. Discover the application to modern life. Here's the thing with the Bible. It must be applied. And here's the rule of application. Parallel situations equal the same application. Different situations require principles drawn out. That's a big one to get wrong. And I'll explain that to you a little bit further on. Next, in fact. Here's what we do. This is called the continuum of biblical interpretation. On one end is this thing called liberalism. What's your response when I say the word liberalism? Oh, you don't know and you haven't been part of the reading of the academic controversy. So when I say liberalism, you're supposed to go, ooh, like that or something, okay? So I'm going to say it again. What's your response when I say liberalism? Yeah, that's right. Because liberalism is a way of grappling with the Bible that says the Bible doesn't contain for us binding applications. So in other words, we don't really have to do much about it. And liberalism is a really great way to avoid being challenged or convicted by the God of the universe. Because when you read the Bible, you just go, it doesn't matter what it says, we kind of get to do whatever we want these days. That's probably the best summary of liberalism. I'm sorry there's not a central summary of it because even liberals amongst themselves disagree with what they are. On the other end of, it, on end of it is this thing called fundamentalism. Now, most media outlets would make you think that anyone who actually believes in the Bible is a fundamentalist, but that's not actually true when it comes to theological purposes. Fundamentalism says this, the Bible as it stands contains literal binding application and here's the key word literal binding application and it means this whatever it says that's the rules do it okay and so what do we believe in liberalism or do we believe in fundamentalism we don't believe in either one of those 
unpack a little bit more for you. Uh, literal binding application says the rules are clear, you just do what it says. And it approaches the Bible in a way that says without change, without shade of meaning, without shade of interpretation, just do what it says. Sounds actually quite good. And it's much better than the alternative liberalism, which says it just shows us some perspectives on God and there's not much to apply these days. I would like to put to you that you're not probably either one of those, although maybe there's one or two of us in the room that are. But for the most part, you're probably not. And I'll tell you why. If you're a man, I'll tell you why. You're either perfect or, okay, a couple of hands, yeah, that's you, buddy. Um, You're either perfect or you've never had an impure thought in your life. And um, (laughs) the women are praying for us right now. And the reason I know that is because if you're a fundamentalist, when Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, right? And a fundamentalist has to be faithful to their chosen mode of interpreting scripture. So I will do an altar call later. You can leave an eyeball at the altar if you want to. It's okay. But we don't do that. You don't see too many Christians that have pulled out their eyeball. And why don't you pull out your eyeball? Why haven't you? Well, if your hands cause you to sin, why haven't you chopped it off? They do in Islam. They chop it off. They help you make that decision for you if you steal a car in Abu Dhabi. Okay? Why? Because we make interpretive calls and we say, when Jesus is talking about that, it's figurative language and it's applied to us a different way than actually mutilation of people's bodies. So in the middle ground, it's not quite the middle ground, it's probably closer to the fundamentals end, is this thing called contextualization, for lack of a better term. And contextualization means this, that what we do with the scriptures is, rather than saying there's no application, and rather than saying it's a literal binding application, we do believe there's a binding application. We believe as, orth- as Orthodox Protestant Christians, the only rule for life and faith is the Christian scriptures. What that means is that when we want to get ideas about how we're supposed to make choices and what are we supposed to believe, the Bible is the source for us. It's the yardstick. It's the rule for what we should think about. It tells us what we should believe. And when it comes to what we should do, we can find it out in there. So it is a binding application, but it's not always a literal binding application. And I'll send you back to the idea of the fact that we haven't cut off our hands or plucked out our eyes. So we know it's not a literal binding application, but it is a binding application, meaning there is a way I can grapple with what Scripture says and say, I should do it or I shouldn't do it, okay? And here's the rules. Draw out a universal principle for life, which applies in every time and every place and speaks to our modern world. Very, very trickiest part of Bible interpretation really is this bit, application. What am I supposed to do with it? How am I supposed to interpret it? Okay? But for the most part, you and I are contextualists, and I'll tell you why, because you'll pass my next test. Here's my next test. Two scriptures. 1 Thessalonians 5.26, greet the brothers with a holy kiss. How many men, women, you're off the hook. You know, it's like... You know, even if you're single here and looking, all right, this is my chance. No. Greet the brothers with a holy kiss. So who gets kissed? The men. And who get who do they get kissed by? A brother's love is a brother's love, folks. Okay, so how many men kissed each other when they walked in the door tonight? But Craig, don't you believe that God's word is the rule for life and faith? This, it's beyond the scope of this particular series to address French kissing or any other nationality kissing. Um, so watch what happens. And here's the second one. So I'm giving you these two examples. Okay, here's the second one. 1 Timothy 5.23. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine. And you'll already see I've broken a rule here because I've ripped it out of context, not even given you the immediate literary or rest of the sentence. However, okay, so I know you've been drinking wine haven't you I saw your your mother said you sleep good after a glass okay so that's not true she did not say that um stop drinking only water and use a little wine okay both of these I want you to look at because these are rules that are routinely interpreted even by fundamentalists 
There isn't a fundamentalist denomination I know of where the men have to kiss each other on the way into church. Maybe you know one. There are cultures I know where the men still kiss. I was talking with, who was I talking to today? I was talking to Dave about, where were you? You're somewhere in the Middle East and... and, Sorry, in Sydney, of course. We know the men love kissing each other in Sydney, Dave. We're moving on. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's where you're from. Okay, okay. Dave was, he, Dave was in an Iraqi church in Sydney and he was saying he's never had so many big bushy male faces kissing him on the cheek. And I said, that sounds like my great auntie Marge's birthday, actually. She had me, gave me a big bushy bearded kiss when she was 92. Um, but it's different. And then I was telling him about when I went up to the Punjab region in uh, India and how many people know the Sikhs in India. They love a good kiss, don't they? Is that, is that, that's not everywhere in India, though, is it, Dr. Koshi? Like, the, it seems to be only the big Sikhs with the big men, big beards... Turbans, swords, spicy food, and uh, and they love a good kiss. Those fellas up there, they'd grab you and smooch you on both sides of the cheeks. And uh, anyway, so so there are cultures where it's practiced, okay. But I don't know of any fundamentalist place where men have to kiss each other because God's word says it. So let's have a look at our continuum. No binding application. Well, that's fine. Doesn't matter what it says. You don't have to do it. But what about this one? A literal binding application. If we believe in a literal binding application, that means, fellas. Next time you're on the way into church, pucker up. And some of you, if you're going to do that, please wear a chapstick, okay? Because you're dry here in Alice Springs. Okay, but, but let's look at the next one. Stop drinking only water, use a little wine. Who has ever... Now, I'm, this is an altar call moment. Who actually carried a Mount Franklin... Hannah, can I see that? Who's carried a Mount Franklin bottle into church and said, I better put some sweet Shiraz in this baby because I believe in applying God's word every time to remove all margin for risk of sin. So I'm just going to do what it says. So I'm drinking wine from now on and not water. It's got, yeah, that's right. That's, why is this covered? That's suspicious. It's cold outside. You don't need to keep it cold. It's better for your vocal cords if it's room temperature. So you don't do that. You don't say, well, I can't drink water, I've got to drink wine. And yet I'll tell you something about the literalist binding interpretation of Scripture. There are many other Scriptures that require just the same type of nuance of interpretation that people literally say, this is a rule we have to follow, and they'll beat each other up about it. I'm not saying there's nothing to be followed in Scripture, but what I'm saying is it requires filtration to understand what are the wise ways of applying God's Word to us so we don't end up as idiotic people making rules that the fellas all have to kiss and Hannah's going to have to, even though she's got a child she's feeding, get on the wine because that's what scripture says and I notice you don't have your head covered either now your husband's left the room too so you're not under his covering so you better leave the room okay so watch okay literal binding application the men must greet each other in public that's what the bible says you seeing this fridge magnet god said it i believe it that settles it not a bad saying but it's 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 nuanced or this one it doesn't really matter do 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 what you say so let's have a look at this one the contextualized view this is example only okay the contextualized view says this and we'll just talk about the greeting the brothers with a holy kiss because the men are starting to sweat that maybe we're going to start making them pash on the way into church or something Uh, so here's what it says okay contextualizing says we'll draw out the universal principles for life we'll apply them in every time and place and it'll speak to our modern world that's what can happen for the scriptures regardless of what the binding behaviors are so let's do some background research if we did it we'd find out this look at the blue kisses were the cultural form of greeting each other with familial affection in the ancient world when you greet someone with a kiss you're saying we're family you're my brother we're related i give you my extreme hospitality and protection 
So it's affection. And brothers, you need to know about this. Brothers is a term that applies to all Christian believers, not just men. So the term Adelphoi, brothers in plural, can actually mean brothers and sisters like the TNIV translates it now. And people are like, oh no, they've made the Bible gender neutral. No, the language that's already in there made it gender neutral because Adelphoi means brothers when you're talking about men, but sisters when you're talking about women. Okay, so... Greet the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. Greet the Adelphoi with a holy kiss. So it's all Christian believers, not just men. So therefore, what is he saying? All Christians are to be taught to greet each other like family. I think that's a powerful verse, don't you? So rather than applying it literally and saying, all right, great. Well, I know it now applies to men and women. So all the girls in the room, give us a kiss on the way out. Okay, so all the creeps in the town would suddenly start coming to Desert Life Church because of our methods of biblical interpretation. So we do the next step. We ask ourselves a question. Okay, well then if kisses were the way of greeting each other in familial terms and we should greet each other like family, why should we greet each other like family? Look in the blue. Because we are being taught that we are family. We should greet each other like family. Why? Because in Christ, we're family. We are brothers. We are sisters. And that's why we would greet each other in certain ways. You're just dying to pucker up, aren't you, Danielle? You've been watching me this whole time thinking, come over here and give us a kiss. I'm not going to... No, Danielle, don't distract me while I'm teaching God's holy word. So look in the orange. So how should we treat each other as family? The greeting is an example. The greeting is a snapshot. This is what's so amazing about the layers and the layers of scripture. It's just one little sentence, greet the brothers with a holy kiss. Transmit to us a wealth of worldview if we process it properly. And we now understand this divine doctrine of, I'm going to call it familiarity, not familiarity, familiarity. We are family. We're familiar. We have bonds. We have the same father. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why Paul said, greet the brothers with a holy kiss. He's saying, really, do you guys know your family? You guys going to behave like family? Should start from the minute that you see each other. I mean, that's a powerful teaching. So here's the alternative, the literalistic binding application. Uh, well, the Bible says the men have got to kiss each other, so Pastor Jamie, lay one on me, sweetheart. <laughs> and we can have a controversy till the cows come home. What type of kiss? How long's the kiss? Which cheek? Is it on the left cheek or the right cheek? I mean, do I, is it with dry lips or slightly moist lips? What's a better thing? Chapstick? Should it be like strawberry scented? And we can have all these controversies about it. Or we can unpack the application across time and space that is universal in every culture that is, if you're a Christian, your family. Ever been to a foreign country and walked into a church and you don't even speak the language, but suddenly you walk into family you never knew you had? Isn't it powerful? Greet the brothers with a holy kiss. That's why it's telling you that. So when we interpret and apply, we derive more powerful understandings from Scripture. Here's the good news. We're almost done. Here's the bad news. We're almost done. We're not even almost done. Um, So in biblical theology, we begin with the book of Genesis. Everything I've said is purely illustrative and introduction, like last week's introduction. This was like introduction part two. Um, And we were supposed to get to Genesis 1 last week, and we didn't. And we're supposed to get to Genesis 1 this week, and we didn't. So someone else is going to have a go next week. Let's see what they do. Um, But when we turn to Genesis chapter 1, there is information that we find about Genesis chapter 1. There is information that we know if we do exactly the same thing, if we seek to open the Bible as an interpreter. 
Next week, we're going to talk about the creation stories that were prevalent where Father Abraham came from, the Babylonian creation stories, which are different from the Genesis creation narrative. And uh, they tell us powerful things. I'm going to give you one powerful thing in one minute, and then you're going to answer me a question about what it might mean. Genesis has a great controversy around it in chapter 1, and here's the controversy. Was it six literal days or was it six metaphorical days? And I reckon even in this room there'd be a scale of thought. Some of you we've talked about it, so I know the different things that some of you think and believe, and I know the controversial points, I know some of the things you wrestle with, and there's a scale of belief in the room, and and, and we could have a good old-fashioned bun fight if we went for a debate right now around what the meaning of those metaphorical days or our literal days is and what Charles Darwin said and then, you know, these modern theologians, what they're saying and all sorts of stuff. So what happens is this. Because we open the Bible text with the modern world's questions and problems, as systematic theologians, then what we do is we straight away begin to ask questions of the text. Here's the problem with the Bible text. It doesn't necessarily need you to ask questions of it. It wants to ask questions of you. Did you know that? The Bible wants to not just be read by you, it wants to read you. That's what Charles Spurgeon said. It's more important than reading scriptures, letting scripture read you and letting it audit your life and see what you think about life. I'm going to give you one example, okay? You could continue and I'm like you know I'm sure you will I'm not discouraging you from this but you could continue to plumb the idea of the six literal days or the six metaphorical days of Genesis one but before you carry on with that process which I do not discourage you from engaging in that process but before you do I want to ask you to think about it something different because see whether it's six literal days or whether it's six metaphorical days that's going to make it hard for you to get on your knees and respond with a Christian creed about what you're supposed to do in the way you practically live your life I'm not saying it's fruitless discussion I'm saying it's just very nuanced and difficult to apply so there's a different way that you could process that in terms of what would the original hearers of thought when they read Genesis chapter 1 about a God that made a universe for his word over six days and then rested on the seventh. And that would say something very, very interesting to anyone who came from Egypt, to anyone who came from Babylon, where Father Abraham grew up, or to anyone who came from what is now known as the Promised Land, the ancient Near East of the Fertile Crescent. Because they shared some beliefs and they shared some practices, even though Egypt, Babylon and the rest of the place had vastly different cultures. Here's one thing they shared. Whenever they opened a temple, the temple would get built. And then the building of that temple would be celebrated with a festival that lasted a certain number of days. Do you want to have a guess how many number of days? The temple celebration would last seven days. And on day one of the temple celebration, they would get up and they would chronicle the first movement in the building of the temple. On day one, the great god Marduk, if this is the Babylonians. The great God, if it was the ancient Near East, it's the same story, but they call the God Baal instead of Marduk. Otherwise, most stuff's the same. The great God Marduk commissioned a temple and he spoke his word and an architect acquired bricks and mortar and dug foundations. And they would have a whole celebration that day about that as they celebrated the first day of the building of the temple. And then they'd come up the next day and then the priest would get the scroll and read, on day two, the great God Marduk. He not only commissioned the building and the architects, but he had treasure and, 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 and gold and frankincense and myrrh, whatever, brought from the four, I'm making that bit up, um, from the four different corners of the world. And they would do that. And every day, up until the sixth day, a celebration would be had celebrating the inauguration of a temple. And then on the seventh day, the priest would get up and say, and today the great god Marduk rests. And in the ancient world, rest isn't about like sleep, 
And it's not about recovery. And it's not about like, oh man, I'm really beat because I did all that work. Rest is something else. Rest is what a king does when a king knows they've got everything under control. I've fought all my battles. I've conquered all my armies. I've won everything that's got to be won. And so what, do I, what does a king do when a king has won every battle in his or her domain? Well, it's a king, so it's his domain. He rests. And so on the seventh day, when they opened up any temple in the empire of Babylon, a day of rest would be declared. And the God would be installed, the idol of the God would be installed in that temple on the seventh day. And everybody would rest as an act of worship of the God who was in charge of the temple. And the God would utter to the priests and the priests would read it to the whole people and, and, and would say on the God's behalf, I want you all to come and enter my rest. And that would mean that now begins a new season in history with all the Babylonians worshipping the God Marduk in this new temple. Okay, seven days celebrating a temple. It's called the temple building text, this type of thing, a seven day story about something being built that will be inhabited in with a God and that God will rest on the seventh day. So now when you open the book of Genesis and you see the world being created by the spoken word of God over how many days? Yeah, six and then the rest on the one. Yeah, uh, okay. So what are we reading when we're reading the book of Genesis? We're reading a thing that Gordon Wenham and many other Bible scholars call a temple-building text. Now, if we're reading a temple-building text, we have to ask ourselves a question, and it's not, what did Charles Darwin say, and were they six literal days or six metaphorical days? Have the discussion, but that's not what the point is if you lived in Father Abraham's time. Because in Father Abraham's time, you watch everybody else celebrate that temples get built over six days and rest happens on the seventh, and then Moses through the stories inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit, writes to you when you're going in to inhabit the promised land full of people who celebrate all of these same stories with the God Baal. And then one day you're going to go, hey, why don't we worship Yahweh in a temple? Why do we do it with altars out in the open air? In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Day one, day two, day three. So Genesis, before it says anything else, and it does say a lot that we could talk about for weeks and weeks and hours and hours at a time. When I used to teach biblical theology in Brisbane, I'd get two three-hour lectures a week over ten weeks to teach this stuff, and I'd only ever get through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, so we're not going to do it tonight in my four remaining minutes. Um, Let me ask you something. If Genesis is a temple-building text, what's the temple that was getting built? What does that say about our world? The psalmist said it, he doesn't live in buildings built by human hands. This world is a temple. This world is designed to be a receptacle for the presence of God where wherever you are on God's green earth, you can encounter the living, breathing presence of the creator himself. You don't need to go to a special building. Isn't that a powerful thought? That's what Genesis 1 teaches you before you open up anything else. It teaches you this world is not the way you think it is. We're going to show you next week when we open up. We're going to open up the, this thing called the Enuma Elish. Sounds crazy. It's the Babylonian creation myth. Tells you what they believed about the world and where it came from. And then we're going to contrast them together and say, well, if that's what they thought, what conclusions would they draw about life? Humans were made from the blood of a slain demon god, made from his guts mixed with the earth so that they would um, you know, do jobs to keep the gods happy. That's what they believe. You'll, you'll read it in the story. And then Genesis says, no, humans were made from the dust of the earth and breathed life into by the mouth of God. 
And they weren't here to do God's work. They were here to cooperate and conquer God's world. And instead of them feeding the gods like the Babylonians thought, God fed them. He said, you can have all the trees of the garden for food. So something completely different about the status of a human. Pretty cool, huh? But we've got to finish because I'm over time. I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to pray that you come back sometime and we keep on learning together about God's word. We hope you have been encouraged by this message. For more information, check out our website at desertlifechurch.org.